Okay, let's get started. We are at Parshas Pinchas. Yulia, can you close the door, please? Yes, Just so we don't have yeah. echoes. Thank you. Okay. Oh. <laughs> okay, here's a lot of stuff happening in Parshas Pinchas. Okay? A lot of stuff going on. Um, okay? What? Okay. So, ooh, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. That was annoying to me also. I apologize. Um, yeah, okay, so first of all, the name of our Parsha... Okay, I want to preface this by saying, I know we try to make Parsha personal and like very like relevant to us, but I want to open the beginning of our Parsha class and say, do not do this at home, okay? <laughs> that is the beginning of this Parsha class. Do not do this. It's, um, in the blue books, it's on page 877. Okay, I just needed that as a preface, and now we can talk about what we should not be doing at home. Yeah. Okay? But it's in the Parsha? It's in the Parsha, yes. So the beginning what if of our. I want to. No, well, no. if you do, then you cannot say, I'm putting this out for everybody, all the witnesses, to say, you cannot go and say, but Rivka Marga said I could. Okay? So you can't. No, no, no. I didn't, no, I want, yeah. Blame her, Henry. Okay, a couple of things. Okay, so first of all, we want to know who is Pinchas. Okay? So Parsha, the Parsha is called Pinchas. It's named after the person. And he is exactly, he is the son of Elazar, the son of Ari Cohen. Okay, so we're already getting, we're getting, so we have a little bit of a little introduction to who he is. He's from which family? Wait, but this is, this is from this. Huh? He's a Kohen. Well, he's actually not a Kohen. Pinchas is actually not a Kohen, which is an interesting little, what? What? I'll get, I'll get to you the number afterwards. Remind me. I forgot. Um, can we just stay focused? Because so distracting for me. Okay. So Pinchas, we're actually coming in. It's sort of like what's going on. It doesn't. We don't know what's happening unless we go back a little bit. So somebody has a chomish open in front of them. Eliana, tell us what happens. Pinchas ben Elazar ben Hashem. Stick with me, people. Hashem says to Moshe, saying, "Go." Pinchas, chapter twenty-five, verse eleven. In my vengeance. Continue. Okay. And and then he and his children after him will be will be priests, blah blah blah. Okay? What who remembers and this is like a, a hard question because from last week. What did Pinchas do? Where our Parsha is opening up with saying, Way to go, Pinchas. You saved the Jewish people. You turned God's anger away because you were a zealot. Now, generally speaking, when we hear zealot, it's a word that makes us nervous. <laughs> to me, zealotry oh, is often not a word that we associate with rational behavior. Okay? Uh, Lauren, what did he do? He, you look back. Tell us. What did he do? He, 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 he ended the plague because he killed those people. He killed two people. And he ended a plague. That was the end of last week's Torah portion. If you remember, last week when Bilaam was trying to curse the Jewish people, that wasn't working. That wasn't going down. As he left, he said, oh, by the way, their God really, really, really hates immoral behavior. That's a better way. If the cursing didn't work, that's another way to get them. So the Midianites and the Moabites send their daughters after the Jewish men. And lo and behold, they are in fact success- successful. 
and a massive, massive plague breaks out amongst the Jewish people, and um, and people are dying. There's, the Torah tells us twenty four thousand people died. That is an astronomical amount of people. That is an incredible amount of people. And and so and then what happened last week? And the measures fills in the pieces is that Pinchas sees everybody sort of frozen. Not in a sing and dance way, but like they just don't know what to do. They're all frozen. He says, and he goes to motion. He says, didn't you tell us what to do? And this is the part. Do not do this at home, okay? Didn't you teach us that if somebody is having illicit relations, you can kill them mid-act. Do not try this again at home, okay? Okay? Remember? Do not do this at home. Thank you. Don't kill anybody. You don't get to be, the zeal- you don't get to be a zealot for God, okay? And mo- so then he says it. He says so he said, it, it's very, it's, okay, it's, this, is like the, this is like a Cliff Notes version of the story, okay? But he's like, he says, did you teach us? like, listen, if this, is what, if this is how you see the law, then go for it. And, Moshe, and Pinchas goes, he kills the two of them with his spear, and the plague stops. Word. Now, now, I want to say, say a couple of things, okay? First of all, do not try this at home. You do not have permission to say, oh, but they were insulting God and therefore I, you know, I'm standing, I'm a warrior for God. That doesn't, that doesn't fly in. We have too many other voices in our head to be that pure, okay? So now our Torah portion is going to open up with Hashem coming out and saying to Pinchas, way to go, Pinchas. You did the right thing. And what's interesting, and what's interesting is that the Torah gives us this lineage for Pinchas and it tells us his father and his grandfather's name, right? Generally speaking, whenever somebody gets, gets identified in Torah, it's only one generation. So the Medrash says, and Rashi brings them, says, why did they have to bring Aaron HaKohen? Why did they have to bring his grandfather Aaron here? And Rashi says, um, and Rashi says, because, because all, the, all the tribes were making fun of him. And they said to him, you just like... You're just like blood. You're just a cruel person. And the proof that they had for that was, I don't know if anybody has Rashi in English, the proof that they had was that your mother's father used to fatten calves for idol worship, which means not just that he served idols, but that he had this whole situation where he would fatten the animals and feed them. And, um, you know, and then you know, like sort of maybe develop a relationship with them. And they're like, oh, look, he's coming. He's going to give us food. And all the whole while... That's like another level of cruelty, right? Like, of like, sort of, I'm your friend, but I'm really not till I kill you, right? So the tribes are all saying, hello, we know why you did this. Why, did, why were there thousands of people standing around and of everybody around, you're the only one who remembered this law. You're the only one who like saw, who, who like, so they were like, yeah, dude, it's in, your, it's in your genes. Of course you're the one who decided to go kill these people. Right? So Hashem comes back and says, actually, that's not his motivation. Actually, he was a zealot for God. Now, I have too much, like, I've heard too many news <laughs> flashes of, of the zealotry on doing this for God and doing this in God's name. It's a very, very, it's a very uncertain thing. And it's very, um, when somebody says, I'm doing this in God's name, I'm doing this for God's honor, we always want to be very, very, very careful about pulling that card out. Because most of the time, that's not the real motivation. 
Sometimes we're just like, you know, the people who are looking for a fight and they're waiting for what the cause is going to be. Oh, I, very often somebody's like, and, and historically, most of the wars have been started in God's name, right? So like when somebody comes and says, I'm avenging God, you really want to be very careful about that. And that's why the tribes all said, this can't possibly be such pure, there can't be pure motivation. There's got to be some genetic something going on over here because look, everybody was here. We all learned this law from Moses, whatever, the last, sometime in the last 40 years, we learned this, this law. Why was he the only one who remembered it? Why was he the only one that, that said, that acted? What, what? He's better, he's smarter, he, he's more knowledgeable than anybody else. So they were all saying, we know why. And I want to just parenthetically, I want to just point out, you know, like one of the things I think that, that, and I think a lot of us work to practice is like an attitude of gratitude, right? He just saved them from a plague that killed 24,000 people. And instead of them saying, thanks, thanks guy, they're like, oh, right. So I just want to put like in the, what we don't do, we don't, we don't do that. We, we do, when somebody helps us, we don't automatically start trying to figure out what their motivation was and why they helped us. That maybe you want to save for a little bit later. Are they like jealous? I don't think they were jealous. I think, I think it, to give them the benefit of the doubt, I think that it's a very, okay, let, let's back up a second here, right? They clearly understood that he did something good. The end of it was good. And the proof is, they didn't say, you're a murderer. That's way more offensive than saying, your grandfather used to fatten calves for, for idol worship, mm-hmm. right? If they thought he was a murderer, then that's what they should have said. Mm-hmm. They should have said, I can't believe you just killed those two people. They didn't say that. That wasn't their argument. But they're like, what was your motivation? And I think it's not a question of them being jealous. I think it's a question of in, when, we, when we walk through life and we want to do things in the purest manner possible, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that's where it was coming from. Like, at the end of the day, they're not saying it was the wrong thing, but they're questioning the motive. Because if your motivation is that you're, you know, this is a, gen- a genetic thing, that means you did a good thing, but like, ah, you know, how ma- you know, you're not getting the Nobel Peace Prize for this. On the other hand, if you are so translucent and you are so bothered by God's name being desecrated, well, then that's really wow. That's something awesome. And because, and this is my take on the situation, so you don't have to like take it. I think because they didn't have that much transparency in themselves, because clearly they were bothered by what was going on, but not enough to be so bothered by a desecration of Hashem's name that they were going to put their life on the line and just act independently, they couldn't imagine that somebody else would have that, right? And I think that's when, okay, so you can't go around killing people, okay? In case you didn't get it, lay a the message. You can't go around killing people. But I want to say something, and one of the things that we, we should pick up from Pinchas is that we can't just see a situation going down and say, it's not my problem. It's not my problem. I think too many times people just say, oh, somebody will deal with this. There are bigger, smarter, more connected people who aren't doing anything about this. Probably it's not as bad as I think it is. 
And I want us to not doubt ourselves. When we see something and we, it looks bad to us, don't just assume, oh, somebody's got this covered and it's probably fine and I just don't understand. Shout it out, call it out, and then if you're wrong, you'll apologize for, you know, for offending somebody. But like, again, it's not our job, like I said, to go like kill people in the street. But I think, can we be a little bothered by God being made to feel unwelcome in our world? And that's really what Pinchas was protecting. He was protecting a desecration of Hashem's name in the most public fashion. And he said, this is not okay. This is not okay. And, and that attitude is possibly something that we should be able to pick up. Not all of it, but at least some of it. At least for us to take some of the layers of desensitization. That one, yeah. Um, just take some of those layers off. And to let ourselves feel and be able to say, God gets, gets to have his honor protected as well in this situation. And, and again, how it works and how it's manifest in our lives is a different conversation. Um, but I think it, at least we should think about that. We should, like, that should be part of our Weltanschauung. That should be part of what we think about and how we look at the world. Like, how does God feel about this, you know? Now, the interesting thing is that Pinchas gets an interesting gift. What is the reward he gets from Hashem? He gets to be a Kohen. Okay? Now, um, what, why is Pinchas not a Kohen? If he's the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron HaKohen, why is he not a Kohen? Did he marry someone wrong? Nope. Oh. Nope. Doesn't, you don't not become a Kohen. You just can't serve. Oh. Uh, okay? That, hmm? Was he the son of Aaron who got like, cut off? No. He, Aaron has two sons who got killed. That, this is a grandson. He's a grandson of Aaron. Okay, so here's an interesting thing. When, we had, when Hashem took the tribe of Levi and split it into two, not half and half, but into two parts, one, the majority of the tribe became the Levites that are going to work in the temple. And a smaller part became the Kohanim who are going to be the priests who are going to be like the level up. Like the, the Levites were like the, the help in the temple in the tabernacle and the priests did, did the service, Okay. Who was the priesthood given to? It was given to Aaron, his sons, and all the children born to the family after. That's what Torah, that's how I said, you know, uh, that's what the, the prescription borders, whatever, whatever, however it was given. It was given to Aaron, to his sons, and to the children who were born afterwards. And Pinchas was, I think, maybe the only one who fell into the category of a grandchild who was already born. No, that's what I was thinking. He was, the only, he was, he was not born into the family after they had been given the priesthood. Mm-hmm. He was already born. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't a priest. And he wasn't a Levite because he was from Aaron's family. What so, loophole. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? So here, here, this is about 40 years later, he finally is given the ability for him and his children to also be... Uh, to also be Kohanim, to be priests in the house of Hashem. And Hashem said, you want to know how much I value you standing up for my honor? That's how much. I'm going to create a loophole and put you through it. So that's, so that's, uh, that's where he's, so that's, that's the story of Pinchas. At the end, it identifies the people who he killed. One was the head of the tribe of Shimon. One was a princess from Midian. The next thing that we have in our parsha from chapter 25, verse 16 and 17 Again, Hashem tells Moses to take revenge on the Midianites for what they did over here. 
Hashem gives pause to the Moabites because they were legitimately afraid. But the Midianites had literally no skin in the game, had no cause to get involved, and yet they still did. So they get Hashem gives him the command to um, to take revenge on the Midianites. We're not gonna. It's not gonna happen yet, but it's gonna happen afterwards. The next thing is we have a census going on. We count the Jewish people. They've just had this terrible, terrible plague that decimates them. That's why it's called That's why the book is called Numbers. We open the book with numbers and we end with numbers. We're going to have another census, I think, at the end as well. Um, so that's why we have numbers going on here. Lots of numbers. One of the interesting things about this census specifically is that it lists every single family name and it also um, brackets their name. If you take a look in any of the verses from... From uh, verse five, verse twenty-six. From verse five, six, seven. Any of the names you'll see, it has the. Na- these are the families. For example, in seven, these are the families of Ruvain, and oh no, sorry, before it. It's, so we have uh, that's going to have a total. Move forward. Um, give me a name. Okay, go backwards. Go backwards. Uh, verse six. Lechetron mishpachat hachetroni. Lakarmi mishpachat hakarmi. So what's going to happen is that every single name is going to get bracketed with a hey on one end and a yud on the other, ne- the other end. What do we know about the letters hey and yud? Part of God's name. Part of God's name. So what Hashem is doing over here, he's putting his name around every single one of the families to say all of these families and all of their descendants are pure and holy because the nations of the world were saying like, oh right, they were in Egypt and they dominated their bodies and they didn't do anything to their women. Right, you tell, you try, to, try to pass that one off, right? And Hashem's like, no. He brackets the names of each family with a hey or a yud. Uh, to say that all the families are pure. And then we're going to, we have the census goes on for a while, and we're going to get the grand total. Uh, grand total, chapter 26, verse 50. One. 50 and 51. 50? These are the families. Okay, 51, yeah? Lauren? Oh, so 51, How, these are the countings of the sons of Israel, 600 and 1,730. 730. This is the exact count of the men, 20 and over. Um, and, and, uh, and, okay, we're talking about what? 601,730. Yes. If you look at it, well, it's interesting. The number hasn't super changed from the first count that we had. That was 603,550. Um, it hasn't majorly changed. We have seen movement within the tribes. Certain tribes lost large numbers. The tribe of Shimon lost a lot of num- a lot of people. So there's been movement within the tribes, but the, the net total has stayed about the same. Um, and the Kabbalists amongst us, I'm sure, will see something to that. There's got to be something about why the number doesn't move so much. It's not just the math thing. It's probably, it's, it's also a spiritual thing. I don't know the answer to the question, though. Okay, the next thing we're going to have is a conversation of dividing the land of Israel. Remember, we are at the banks of the Jordan. We're ready to cross into the land of Israel. Somehow we want to get in. And basically what's going to happen is the Torah is going to describe three different ways that the land of Israel is going to be divided. And then when we talk about um, the land of Israel being divided, it also a lot of the commentaries talk about that this is also our relationship to Torah. So it's very interesting. Uh, so we're going to spend uh, two minutes on this. Okay, so how is the land of Israel divided? The first thing that we have over here in verse 50, uh, 54 is that you need to divide them by size. The bigger tribes will get bigger portions. The smaller tribes will get a smaller portion. Um, 
And that's how that makes sense, right? They also take into account the land that's more fertile gets, you know, has more value of the land. You get the, you get the whole Judean desert, like, shkoyach, that's not super helpful, right? Um, and then it says, ach We're going to divide the land by lottery. Now, what do we know about a lottery? It's not fair. It, it, no, no, it, not, that it's not, not that it's not fair. It's, it's so random. Yeah. Right? So it, it seems to us, like, you take it logically, say, you're the big group. You get this portion. Mm-hmm. You're the smaller group. You get this portion. That makes sense. When you say lottery, that's like, whoa, how's that going to work, right? Um, uh, and then it says over here, Alpi Hagoral, in the next verse, according to the verse of the Goral, it'll be, it'll be inherited. Um, and Rashi says, Alpi Hagoral, that the pieces of, well, it wasn't paper because it didn't have paper, but whatever it was that they were doing the Goral were talking. Now, I don't know if that actually happened for real, that they actually talked, or there was some kind of way. Then they said, I go to this tribe. And the, and the commentators in the Gemara and the, and the Madrash talks about it like this. Basically, the line of Israel was divided through, in three ways. First, they sat down with the map and they divided everything up. And then they took the names of each tribe and they put them into one sort of container. And then they took the sections that they had divided up in another, in another bowl. And each head of tribe came up. Really? and picked one of each. And when they picked one of each, they actually picked their own name here. And here, they got the piece that had logically been divided. Okay, so it's a lottery. So there's a randomness to it, but the measure tells us all the pieces matched up to it. Okay? The other way that we have the land of Israel is that it's an inheritance for us. Question? Yeah, why would they, if it's the heads of the tribe growing, why would they then pick out of the name? Because it's because it's like this. Rashi says this is how they did it. They had a a, a tri, like the the tribe and a head of tribe written yeah. on whatever they wrote on, and here they had the the dimensions of the ter, of the of the, of the territories. So they were they weren't just picking one. They were doing a double a double uh, blind test, and and the measures in Rashi brings that it came out exactly the same. So like very cool party trick, but why, right? What's the importance of that? So. When we talk about our relationship to Torah, when we talk about our relationship to the land of Israel, we have different ways that we look at it. There is the place of, it's logical. This fits here, and these pieces go together with that, and all of this makes sense, right? That's one way that we approach, that we approach both the land of Israel and, and Torah. How does it make sense? How does it fit together? But there's also a place of lottery, which is a kind of randomness that... You need to, there's somebody bigger figuring this one out. Now, sometimes we look at lotteries and it just seems like, you know, oh yeah, coincidentally, your friend won the, <laughs> you know, the, the photo shoot for the family, you know, like maybe, and maybe in a real situation, it really is that place of random is Hashem saying, this is how this goes together. This is like a very, it's like, it, one of the, th- any, okay, Trick question, maybe not a trick question. Which holiday do we, ha- do we have that's named after a lottery? Oh, oh I know that one. Purim. 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 The, lo- the holiday of Purim is named after the lottery. Pur is, is a lottery in their language. Okay? Not in, not in Hebrew, but in whatever language they spoke in Persia. Okay? Why? Because there is something very special to a lottery done well. Where you think this is what it's going to be. And Hashem's like, no. So Haman could go and pick a lottery and say, I'm going to have this be the day that we're going to kill all the Jews. And God's like, 
I think not, right? But, and and the, that the godly lottery overrules his. So the place of lottery is this place of randomness, but it's also opening it up to Hashem. I mean, there's a lot of things that in my logical, as logical as I am, and we could argue that point afterwards, it's not relevant for this class, mm-hmm. but in my logic, this is what I see as something that's necessary for me to do. When we talk about our relationship with Torah, whatever it is, this, is, this makes sense to me. And then there's this place of lottery. We sometimes approach Torah and we sort of jump. And the people around us say, that wasn't so logical. And we're like, it's another place of me that's speaking up. It's the lottery part of my relationship to Torah and to the land of Israel that's coming to the fore here. And it's, I'm doing something that's not 100% logical, but so, so, so right. And the third way that we have the land of Israel is that it's an inheritance to us. We all have a portion in the land and nobody can say, I have to do something to earn it. You don't earn an inheritance. You just are who you are. And so when we look at ourselves and we look at our relationship to Hashem, we look into our relationship to Torah, there's so many ways that we interact and that we connect. And different times we use different one of the one of those means of communication. Meaning like we don't always, if we always did everything logically, I promise you, none of us would be sitting in this room right now, right? Like that didn't follow any kind of logical pattern. But if we only live our life by lottery and by random and how I feel, well, that's also not a super uh, normal way to do things. Okay, I'm just going to put that out there. So, so how, do we, how do we sort of mesh those and how do we mesh those different parts of our relationship, understanding that the most underlying point to all of this is that it's ours. It's our inheritance. We don't have to do anything to earn it. We just have to be who we are. And then we get to then step into it in this fashion or in that fashion. But that's, you know, that's, I I think it's just so important for us to understand, like, we want to be logical. We want to be normal. We want to be like, you know, that's good. Step by step, that's really the good way to behave as, as normal, solid people. And every so often, and every so often, it's okay when we do something that is just like, where did that come from? I don't know, but I'm doing this. I'm trying this. I'm jumping into this. I'm having this, this experience. It doesn't matter. There's something to that also and, and that we are, really are intrinsically connected. Okay. Um, the Seder, chapter 27. Once we start dividing the land, five sisters come to speak to Moses. Okay, the daughters of Tzalafchad, come to speak to Moses and they say our father has no sons and we want a portion of the land of Israel. Now I want to back up for a second and see if this where's the eraser? No. Okay. Okay. I want to explain something Okay, about the division of the land of Israel. Okay. This is one that we had sorry. Okay. The way the division went of the land of Israel. We have the generation that leaves Egypt. Okay, these are called the Yotz, the, the, these are from the Exodus generation, okay? Let's say in the Exodus generation, this person, this, let's say, Ruvain, had, I'm making this up, you can check it in the Chumash, I'm wrong, okay? Let's say he had, four, he had three sons, okay? Now, when they're coming into the land of Israel, this is entering, basically what happens is, Ruvain is going to get three portions, and everybody who was born in the 40 years is going to have to take those three portions. 
That's the new, here's the three portions here. And now there are 50 people and they're gonna divide it 50 ways. Pretend I made 50 lines over here. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, okay. So basically the, there's like this, this intermingling going between the generation that left Egypt and the generation that goes into the land of Israel. Now, the daughters of Tzlafchad come and they say, our father who left Egypt has no sons. He has no representative in this line over here. Okay, because at that point there, it, there, was, no, there was no law of inheritance for the women. And they said, we want a portion of the land of Israel. And it's interesting, if we, if we follow the trajectory of the Jews in the desert, every single time it was a question of God or something else, the land of Israel or something else, the women were always on the God side. Mm-hmm. Golden calf, where were the women? On the God side. When spies, where were the women? Mm-hmm. On the God side. Where were, like all the time, whenever something came up, they were always on the God side. So the daughters of Tzlachad come and they say, this is not fair. Our father did not die with any of the, the rebellion of Korach. He had his own sin. He wasn't, he was like a good person. Why should we lose out and why should he lose out and not be able to have any portion in the land of Israel? You have a question? What did the father have inheritance from someone above him? But his his family would then be, he was part, let's say, Slafad is part of like uh, the five brothers. They would only be getting four portions. They wouldn't get a portion for him. Because he has nobody on the other end to claim it for him. Okay? And so, this, what? It, before this, it went only through sons. It only got, yeah. So, so, inheritance was going through the sons. So, they go to Moshe and they say, not fair. It's not fair. You know, we really want to be part of the conquest of the land of Israel. We want to be part of the settling of the land of Israel. And please, could you do something about this? I mean, they didn't say it like that. But that's my modern spin of what they said. And so Moses just says, I happen to have God on speed dial. Let me see what he has to say. That's what he says. They go to him. They say, our father, da, da, da. He says, so they go to Moshe. And um, so, Moshe, so verse, in verse, chapter 27, verse 5. And Moshe takes their complaints to Hashem. And Hashem says, yes, in fact, they are right. And when, there's, when there are no brothers, when there are no sons, the daughters inherit. There's all kinds of... Uh, sociological reasons why the inheritance situation worked like this. Practically speaking, um, today everybody divides their estates equally so their sons and their daughters get it. It can't officially be called an inheritance. It's called a gift. There's halachic ways to do this. Usually it's relevant if there's large amounts of money to deal with. But um, but that's, that's, that's like the practical thing. So we, now we have the laws of inheritance. But I want to stop for a second and I want to say Huh? What's going on over here, right? Now, um, when we talk about settling in the land of Israel, there was, in fact, when the Jews entered the land of Israel after their sojourn in the desert, which we never use that word, by the way. You never use sojourn for, like, anything else, right? They were in the desert for 40 years, and then they go to the land of Israel, and they have this obligation to settle and conquer, conquer and settle the land of Israel, okay? So... So Kabbalah talks about the idea of different ways that we interact with the world because that conquest happened once, right? We conquered the land once, but every single day and every single part of our lives, we are met with a world, back to Pinchas' conversation, that is not hospitable to Hashem, it's not hospitable to God, 
And every single day we are encountering and we are bringing God into the consciousness of ourselves and of the people around us. And so Kabbalah says there's basically two ways that we do that. There's a masculine way that we do that and there's a feminine way that we do that. Not male and female, but masculine and feminine. We have both of those components. Both men and women have masculine and feminine Kabbalistic traits. What is the masculine way that we do things? Killing two people. Killing two people. uh, Conquest, going out, war. We're going to fight this till it gets till we we subdue it. And then we're going to plant the flag of God on top. What? Skila. Skila, whatever. Yeah, like this is a very massive. A feminine way of encountering the world is this way. We're going to build consensus. Let's talk about this. How do we feel about this? Who's on our team? How do we nurture the hope and the potential for goodness and kindness? Do we just squash it out? Or do we, or do we sort of fan the flames of the holiness and then, we, and then that's another way to bring Hashem's light into the world? And one of the things that the daughters of Slavkat understood is that for most of history, the way to do things was going to be the masculine modality. We're going to have, we, we, if you look at our history, the history of the Jewish people, it is not pretty. It is not fun. There's lots of times we just needed people to stand up and be strong for God and say, you cannot go here. You cannot do this. The Maccabees, the people who established the state of Israel, you needed people who were going to just say, no more. Up until this point, and you can't move forward further. But the, they understood that that isn't the modality that's going to work for forever. And a more messianic modality is how do we build, how do we nurture, how do we come from a feminine angle, and how do we settle and secure the land that way. And one of the things I think that's very interesting that you see, and the studies will, I think, bear me out, at least the studies I, I saw when I was looking at them, is that as more women came into professions, the professions changed the way they, they behaved. So like a doctor, as we had more women doctors, the question of holistic looking became more, how do we spend more time? It's not just, here's your problem, here's your solution. As we got more women in management and in lawyers, the way, it wasn't just like, I'm gonna crush you like a bug. It was more like, how do we, how do we do this? How do we do team building? How do we work together? And that's a very feminine modality. And this is one of the things that the daughters of Slavchat understood. It's gonna, there's, maybe at that time when they were alive, it wasn't the go-to uh, stepping stone, but it was going to happen. And we are, thank God, living in a time where we see the power of feminine, again, not, not exclusively female, but that feminine power of cohesiveness and nurturing, that's a way of bringing holiness into the world. And so I want to give us a bracha before we finish, but that we get to embrace that part of ourselves as well. It's so easy to say it's not valued and it's not, you know, it's only good for selling cars. It's not true. There's something very beautiful about how we do things as in a feminine way, and I want us to, to, to be able to step into that and to use both. There are times we need, we need to use our masculine modality and say, no, this is not okay, and this is not, you know, like we say in Hebrew, this is not beseder, right? That's exactly how you say it in Hebrew. Um, but, uh, and, and, but also to be able to, how do we nurture and how do we, and how do we protect, and that's going to be a, very, a much more feminine uh, place of doing it. And they were the forerunners for that, saying this has to happen. And Hashem's like, they're right. They also get a place, they also get a portion, and what they're going to do is not just build a house, but they're going to be settling it and making a holy place for Hashem wherever it is that they are. Um, 
Hum, hum, hum. So then once they get settled, in verse 12, it's the answer. There's an answer to Moshe's question. Moshe's like, oh, maybe I also get to go into the land of Israel. Since the rules are changing, maybe I could also go into the land of Israel. And in chapter 27, verse 12, Hashem says to him, sorry, you can see the land, but you can't go in. It's got to be so heartbreaking, right? You can see it, and then you're, and then basically you're gonna, you're, you're gonna be gathered unto your people, which is a euphemism. You're gonna die. What's the first thing that comes out of Moshe's mouth in verse 15? First of all, we, this is a verse that we don't see often in the Torah. I think this is the only place we have it. Verse 15. No, no, before that. Moses spoke to Hashem. And Moses spoke to Hashem, saying, We have a hundred, hundreds of times. Hashem says to Moshe, Hashem says to Moshe. This is one time Hashem, Moshe speaks up to Hashem and he says, what's the first thing? Go, Erica. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all the flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and who may go in before them and who may lead them out and may bring them in. More? That the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep that have no shepherd. Okay, so this is, so he is saying, you know, how many of us are big enough that we hear we're not going to make it to wherever the destination that we would like to get to? And the first thing that he worries about is the people. What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to the Jewish people? Will you give them a leader? Will you give them somebody who can really help get them to the final goal? He doesn't say, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. You know, please, please, please. He did that already. His first concern really is going to be for the Jewish people. And he wants a very, very specific kind of leader. He, the Rashi says that he was asking if his children could be the leaders. And Hashem says they are not worthy of taking over your position. But Yehoshua, Joshua is going to be, is going to be taking, here, taking over the... <laughs> Hi, guys. Um, that Joshua is going to be leading the people... And he, Hashem asked him to give him v'samach yad of aleihem. He talks of uh, I can't find the passage in front of me. Oh yeah, at verse twenty-three, he's going to put Moshe's going to put Hashem says to put his hand on Joshua. And that's how he's going to pass it on forward to the next person. And and if you ever heard the word smicha to become a rabbi, you need a smicha. Once upon a time, that's what it was. They literally put their hands on the person that they were giving smicha to and they gave it to them. Now you're, you're like authorized to do this. Um, so Hashem says to Moshe to give, put like at least one hand on Joshua. And in the end he gives two hands to him and he really gives it to him in such a beautiful, beautiful way to make sure that he has everything that he needs in order to take care of the people. Okay? Um, so that's that. Then the next thing that happens from chapter 28 till the end of the Parsha is we're going to have the commandments of the different sacrifices that we bring for holidays. So the first we're going to hear about the, a, a daily sacrifice that was brought twice a day. We hear about, if anybody's following along with me, we have Rosh Chodesh, we have Shabbos. What do you bring for Shabbos? What do you bring for Rosh Chodesh? And then we have, we have lots of sacrifices for Rosh Chodesh. Then we have Pesach, we have Passover sacrifices that we have to bring. And then keep, keep turning uh, someplace towards the end of that chapter, we're going to have for Shavuot, what do we do? Sacrifices, again, chapter 29, we're going to hear Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, uh, Sukkot, what do we do over here? And it, in this part, it's not only, only talking about the sacrifices that we bring 
on each of those holidays. The Torah reading, the Mafia reading for every single holiday is taken from the Parsha Pinchas. It's taken from here, so like in a question of what was Pinchas' reward as well, his Parsha always is going to be read multiple times during the year. Every Rosh Chodesh, every Rosh Hashanah, Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, all of those, we're gonna, it's going to be the end of the reading. So this is when, if you're, if you're in Shul, they'll take out a second Torah yeah. and they read, uh, they read from the second, from about, the, about the holidays. It's coming from this Parsha. And it is going till the end of the Torah portion where the end is that Moshe tells all of this, all of these laws to the Jewish people. Okay, so we, yay, look at us, we finished our Parsha. I've, I have a few things that I want to share with you, but I think we're doing well with time. I want to say two things. Next week, next week, because you guys have a trip, we don't have Parsha class. Next week is a double Torah portion, and we are going to finish the book of Bamidbar. Okay, so that is like a big deal. What does it mean that we're finishing it? It means that, practically speaking, what it means is that when we get to the end of the, the Masay, uh, when the Torah reader is going to read Al Yarden Yerecho, I can't. I clearly can't read Torah. Everybody in the whole shul is going to shout out Chazak, Chazak, Vinit Chazek. That you should be strong. You should be strong. You should be strengthened. So that is like how we start, and we're immediately going to start the next book. So if we had more time, we would discuss closing the whole book. We don't have so much more time. Is it so a party? is it a party? Everything's a party. It's always a party. Um, is, is it a practical party? Not really. I want to say one thing. I want to, in case anybody makes it to show next week, I want to say one thing. Um, we, and then we'll go back to our partial for a second. But we talked about that this is book, the, the subtitle that I give to this book, and me being, I have no, whatever, this is just my own personal take on the situation, is Jews in Transition. Right, because we talk about the Jews right at the beginning and we Jews at the end of the forty years. It's not the whole forty years; it's Jews in transition. If you make it to Shul next week, okay, and the whole congregation and even the quietest little Ashkenazi con- congregation is going to belt this one out, okay? Um, they they're giving a power. They're giving a bracha of power to us. They're giving a, a, a charge to be strong, to be strong, and to be strengthened. And if you make it to Shul. And you take two minutes during the Torah reading to say, where am I transitioning? In what am I in transition? I would love a little bit of help in this one. I would love to have the congregation belt me with some chazak, chazak. Think about it. And then when they say it, take it. Take that blessing for yourself for something that you want to work on, something that you're in transition with, something that you're in transition for, and that how do you make it? You know, take this power. It's being given to us for free. We might as well tap into it. All you have to do is wake up and go to show. Mm-hmm. Th- there is that. There is that part of it. <laughs> there is that part of that. Okay. Beseder. Um, okay. So we finished our parsha. I'm so excited. I wanted to talk about a couple of things. Okay. First of all, yes, we spoke about Pinchas. We spoke about that idea. Um, there's so much going on in this parsha. It is not the longest Torah portion at all. It's high up on the, the long Torah portions. But I want to talk for a second about, about the sacrifices, which is like weird, right? Sacrifice is like a weird thing. Um, um, the first sacrifice that's listed over here is, I actually just lost my place. No, here, it's from, it's from uh, the fifth Aliyah. Okay, the first sacrifice that we hear about is uh, 
Anybody want to read for us? Beginning of chapter 28. Um, no, no, before Shabbat. Look, go to Leah, chapter 28. Start reading. Yeah, right there. Yeah, chapter 28. Beginning of chapter 28. Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my fires, my satisfying aroma, shall you be scrupulous? Scrupulous, yeah. Scrupulous to offer to me in, in its appointed time. Keep going. And you shall say to them, This is the fire offering that you are to offer to Hashem. Male lambs in their first year, unblemished, to a day, as a continual elevation offering. Uh, as a continual elevation offering. The one lamb shall, make, shall you make in the morning, and the second lamb shall you make in the afternoon. With the ten of fa. Then it's going to continue. What else you get, you go, you, you get with it? The first sacrifice that we're told to bring is what's called, in Hebrew it's called the carbon Hatamid. It's a daily sacrifice that was brought every single day, in the morning and in the evening. Everything else, all the other sacrifices that were brought in the temple or the tabernacle on that day had to be sandwiched between those two sacrifices. The first sacrifice offered always was the carbon atomid, and the last sacrifice that was offered was again the evening carbon, the, the late afternoon carbon atomid. Um, there was a group, the Talmud tells a story of a group of rabbis who were sitting around and they're saying, what is the most important verse in all of Torah? And one rabbi said, Shema Yisrael. Like, that makes sense, right? Shema Yisrael is the most important. And another rabbi said, V'hafleyach Kamocha is the most important. And the third rabbi said, And they all said, he's right. One of the things that Judaism demands of us it's not always so glamorous and it's not always so whatever is consistency showing up all the time when we are asked to serve we are that we show up and that we're there not just when it's exciting not just when Shema Yisrael I gotta give my life not when it's just via like it's like big not just big moments can we show up on a consistent basis? Can we show up on a, a random Monday morning and do what we need to do? Can we show up when it's not super exciting, when it's not so glamorous, when it's not so much fun? Can we say that, can we do what we say we are going to do? And we talk about what is the, one of the strongest building blocks in Judaism? It's something that's really hard, I think, for all of us to do, to be consistent. To do something new is so much fun. We could do it. It's exciting. We remember. Once you start doing it all the time, <laughs> that becomes a little bit of a challenge. And I, and I want to give us a bracha because all the rest of the sacrifices that they're going to talk about, Shabbos, yeah, it comes very often. It comes every single week. It's like every single week you're going to have Shabbos. Rosh Chodesh is going to come every single month. Rosh Hashanah is going to come once a year. Like things, they become like points of inspiration you know, sprinkled through our calendar. But can we show up when we're tired, when we party too much, when we, you know, don't feel like it, we need our coffee, whatever it is, can we show up and be good, holy people in every single space that's as, that, we want, that we want to be? And I want to give us a bracha that we take that inspiration from Pinchas. It's the whole Parsha's name for him. 
that we take that inspiration of being able to see a God view on the world, to look at the world through a God lens, and then to be able to say, can I then have the courage to show up and be consistent in what it is that I'm doing? It doesn't always feel like, sometimes it just feels like, I can't believe I'm doing this again, but the, but the proof, and we know it's true in relationships, and if it's true of a, of a human relationship, it's true of a God relationship. When we show up and we show that we're there and we care on a regular basis, not just when it's their birthday, not just when it's something special, but on a regular, I send a text to somebody or call somebody and say, hey, I was thinking about you, those are the most meaningful things. So I want to give us a bracha that we, like I said, that we look at the world with a God lens and that we look at, it, look at ourselves with a God lens and that we look at the world and how can I do something every single day to show up and be consistent because that is ultimately the most beautiful thing we can give ourselves and the world around us. Have an awesome rest of the day and a great Shabbos. Shabbos.